Welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. We are glad you are taking advantage of this resource. If you would like to find out more information about our church or connect with us, go to cornerstonebv.org. You can also check us out on our Facebook page, at CornerstoneBV. We hope that the message today impacts your life and draws you closer in your walk with Christ. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, we're going to look at uh, Acts chapter 9, starting with verse middle way through verse 19 to the end of the chapter this morning. If you want to open your Bibles, of course, we'll have the uh, passage up on the screen as well. I want to give you a preview of a, a preview that's coming in about a week. So I want to get ahead of the curve. Um, we're going, to, going to offer something we haven't done for a long time, and that is a new believers class. And so if you might be interested in, you know, what does it mean to be a believer or what happens after you become a believer, uh, this will be going, uh, being offered uh, in October, October 11th, I think. Gus Piazza will be the leader of that group. You'll, you'll hear more about it as it comes. So um, just, just so it give you a heads up, it may be of interest to you. All right, so we're going to look at a subject that, that Luke is, is really, really enjoyed writing about. He is fascinated by uh, conversions to Christ. In fact, um, there's probably about 27 of them, depending on who counts them, that are just in the book of Acts alone. But he's not only interested in conversion, he's also interested in what happens after conversion. That's the discipleship part. And so he brings those two things together here in this particular passage that we're going to look at. He is most fascinated by Saul's conversion is he spends a great deal of time on that conversion in this chapter, but he also brings it up again in Paul's own testimony later on in the book of Acts in three different chapters, right towards the end of that book. So we're going to look a bit uh, at this bit of Paul's life through the lens of these two different themes, conversion and its implications for following Jesus. Now, for Luke, conversion is a miracle. It is something that God himself does in the life of a person who is a, who is a believer. But the discipleship part is what happens next to build a life that looks like Christ, a beautiful life. So let's start with a definition first. Here's a definition of conversion. This is what the author wrote. Conversion consists in being made willing to comply with the gospel call, by embracing Christ for salvation and surrendering ourselves up to him to be taught and pardoned and governed according to his revealed will. And, and this is the important part, in our whole relationship to God, or our whole relation to God, our prospects for eternity, our views, our feelings, our prevailing disposition and habits are totally changed. That's the most three important words are totally changed. And we'll see how that works out in Paul's life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this example in, in Saul's life um, and what happened to him when you met him on that road and how his life was transformed. Because we know that uh, for the most part, without Paul, none of us would be here. He was the, gospel, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. So we thank you and we pray that you will teach us what we need to know in this portion of your word. And more importantly, change us into what we need to become in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. So let's take a look at what happened immediately following Saul's conversion, starting about sort of the middle of verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. 
And all who heard him were amazed, and they said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus Christ, uh, that Jesus was the Christ. So the great persecutor of the church, the chief of sinners, has become the great proclaimer of the one who forgives sins. Uh, and that was pretty amazing. So uh, James Boyce, the late pastor, uh, wrote about, about this passage. He, he said, you know, babies at birth, they start crying, and if they don't, there's something wrong. And he applies this to what Paul is doing here. Uh, Paul, Paul uh, immediately, Luke says, immediately he began to preach Christ. And we see this with new converts very often. Immediately after their conversion, there's some verbalization of uh, what has just taken place in their lives. And if you, know, if you had a family like mine, they all thought I had just become a holy roller, you know what I mean? And uh, I, I, just, I would just talk, and I would tell them stuff, and they say, yeah, 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 that's fine, stay, stay away, it's okay, right? And, and uh, a lot of believers in the church, especially if they've been a believer for a long time, they're just going, you know, will you guys just be quiet? Just, just quiet down, you know? You know what it's like? New believers are like those, those couples who are about to get married, and they can't stop talking about the wonders of the other person. So like, please, just stop. Just get married, will you? These new believers, they're just like messy. They get their theology all wrong. They say stuff that's crazy. Here, listen. We should not try to shut them up. We need them. And the reason we need them is because the longer we progress in our faith in Christ, and I'm not saying it's a good thing. It's just what you can observe happening is that the circle of our friends get less and less in the world, people, the unbelievers that we used to know, and more and more in the church. That's just sort of what happens. So we need those new believers who are just so noisy and they're messy. We'll just clean up the mess. Let them go. We'll figure it out. That's what Paul is like. Now, for Luke, the primary evidence is not what you say, but the, for Luke, the primary evidence was, is uh, baptism. And we see that in, in uh, chapter 8 where uh, Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch, and after the conversation is over, uh, f- uh, the, the uh, Ethiopian man says, hey, here's water. What, what would stop me from being baptized? And Philip immediately baptized him. So that's, that's really the demonstration of this life of conversion. Now, the results of Saul's conversion, this, this, this preaching that he did, is what upset everybody. Now, the ESV that most of us use or some other translation doesn't really bring out what Paul was really preaching and the emphasis of his preaching. His preaching, it, we'll, we'll flesh it out like this. His preaching was like, hey, everybody, Jesus is the Son of God, this one. He's the Christ, Christ alone, get it? And that's what upset people. That's why they were so mystified by the change that was going on in Saul. Now, I'm going to butcher this name. I, I'm sorry. I have to apologize to the person. I'll probably never meet him. Um, but his, uh, let me ask you, is, the name, is, is this fellow's name um, brought up around your dinner table? Haibatula Akunadza? You know him? How many of you are discussing about him around the table at night? Yeah, well, my wife knows him because I just butchered the name at home trying to practice all week long, and I did it again. 
Well, we don't discuss him around the dinner table, do we, dear? We try not to. Okay, so who is he? Good question. Right now, uh, we'll call him Aki. It's my nickname for him. Right now, he is the head of the Taliban in Afghanistan. He lives in Kabul. Right now, as the Islamic leader there, uh, Christians are being persecuted on his orders. Jail time, confiscation of their homes, um, um, uh, possibly murder, uh, possibly uh, executed. Now just imagine if that man renounced Islam and preached Christ. Imagine what would, the shockwaves would go around the world. That's what happened to Paul. That's his situation. And that's why everyone was just missing. How, did the, how could that happen? Luke says, it's a miracle. All right, so this, this led to Paul's next experience, which um, uh, Luke just sort of sums up in just a few words in verse uh, 23, when many days passed. Now, that many days happens to be about three years because we know that, that Saul said, uh, we'll call him Paul, when he wrote to the Galatians, that he left Damascus for a period of time and went to Arabia. So we look at the text there in Galatians chapter 1, starting with verse 15, and this is what Paul wrote. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who, who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. And, and I returned again to Damascus. So, so he's in Damascus, he goes to Arabia, then he returns to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Now, when we read that Arabia, we might think what we're talking about here is Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia didn't exist as a nation in Paul's day. Here's two maps, and I want to show you where, where it's likely that Paul went. This map on the left is the configuration of nations around Israel today. So you see Jordan, Iraq, and Syria to the north. In Paul's day, it wasn't like that at all. You see the green spot? That's where Judea and uh, Jerusalem are. Just directly north, you'll see in the red, Damascus. And then this pinkish area is Arabia. So you see, Damascus is not very far from the Arabia that Paul likely went to. And so he didn't go very far. He was there for a while. And nobody knows why. Nobody, Luke doesn't tell us. I mean, he probably knew, but he didn't, he didn't think it was important to say. We don't know why he went there. We don't know what he did when he got there. One of the things I think that we can say safely is that whenever um, God sent his servants into the wilderness, it was for a time of preparation. Think of Moses. 40, days, uh, 40, 40 uh, uh, years in the wilderness. Why? To prepare him to become Israel's deliverer. And then Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness to prepare them to go into the land. Even Jesus himself spent 40 days in the wilderness overcoming the temptations of Satan before he began his public ministry. So I think this is probably what's going on. It, it's, it's, we, we can't say for certain, but it just kind of makes sense. God's getting his man ready for an amazing ministry. So then we go to verse 23, and uh, we'll pick that up. And when many days passed... 
So Paul's back in Damascus now. When many days passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night, and they led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So now the threats against Saul are getting deadly serious. The plan is to guard the city gates so that if he tries to leave, they will arrest and capture him and keep him because their goal is to murder him. However, you know that little phrase, but God? We love that phrase around here. But God shows up. The disciples that Paul had brought to the Lord now prepare to get him out of Dodge. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem before those guys even knew he left Damascus. But when he gets to Jerusalem, he isn't exactly welcomed with open arms, is he? Look at verse 26. And when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Uh Uh-oh, we know something's up. And they were all afraid of him, and they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took uh, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, And how at Damascus he had preached boldly the name of Jesus. Now, we can't blame the church for being suspicious. This is Saul, the persecutor of the church, the guy who's going to arrest people. You know, they said, a real disciple, genuine conversion? I don't think so. This could be a double agent. He is spying on us, so he gets information on us and turns us into the Sanhedrin. Don't trust this man. He's probably not at all a believer. He's still a Pharisee. Well, but God provided Barnabas, and Barnabas opened the door for Saul to be received. Now, it's interesting what Barnabas says uh, as the ground for why this is a genuine conversion in this man. Notice what he says. First of all, he saw Jesus. He saw him with his own eyes. Just like the apostles saw him, Saul saw Jesus. Try to say that three times fast. Saul saw Jesus. Not only that, but Jesus spoke to him audibly. Saul Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the third thing, and I think this was probably the most persuasive, when Paul or when Saul preached, people got saved. There were disciples because of his preaching that were brought into the church. His preaching was effective and authorized by the Lord Jesus, and that's why people were being saved. So time, uh, he needs time for further preparation, apparently, and in verse 28... We see the same kind of thing happening to him in Jerusalem that happened in Damascus. So he, that is Saul, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and he disputed with the Hellenists. These these would be Greek, God-fearing people. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So it's a repeat performance uh, from Damascus. Same thing's happening to him in Jerusalem and his disciples are spiriting him out of town. He went home to his hometown, which was Tarsus. And uh, we don't hear from Paul for another 10 years. Nobody knows what he did in those 10 years. Nobody knows... What, he, what, what, what his goals were or anything about him, we have, we have no clue. Now, here's a footnote to the story, because people do ask, how in the world did Paul get his name 
Paul when he was called Saul. And, and why, why, what's the confusion about that? Well, remember, Jesus called him Saul. So Jesus did not change his name. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Refers to him as Saul. We don't hear about a Paul until Acts 13. In fact, in the first part of Acts 13, he's still called Saul, and then just a few verses later, he's now called Paul. So how is that happening? What's going on? Well, for Paul, Saul, this is a strategic gospel ministry plan. This is how his, he's going to further the gospel when he goes to the Gentile nations, which happens in Acts 13. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 9, 20. This explains why he decidedly changed his name. Uh, let me say this. Saul is the Hebrew given name. Paul is his given Roman name. His parents were Roman citizens. He was a Roman citizen. So he had this dual citizenship thing going. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those who were under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. See, that's the Saul part. He's talking to, about Jewish people. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are outside the law. That's the Paul part, the Gentile part, those people outside the law of God. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And here's why. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in the blessings. See, Jewish people wouldn't listen to a Paul, a Roman man, Roman people wouldn't listen to a Saul, a Jewish man. But Roman people would listen to Paul, and Jewish people would listen to Saul. This is very strategic, and this is why he did it, because it gained entrance for him into two different kinds of people. Remember, he would always go in and preach to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So thus concludeth the after-conversion, what's next part of Saul's story? But what about our story? about our conversion stories is there anything in here that we can learn about our conversion stories and living as converted people the one thing that's true about all conversions is one word change change comes into our lives so let's look at how change came into uh, Saul's life and, uh, and apply it to our own first of all there's a change in life direction. The fundamental change in, in conversion is our relationship to God through Christ. We are forgiven people. We are accepted people. We are loved people. We are righteous people. Uh, there's no fear of condemnation for our sins any longer because Christ paid that penalty. So remember the definition, though, that we started with. By embracing Christ for salvation surrendering ourselves up to him to be taught and so on, we, our prevailing dispositions, our habits are totally changed. Totally. Every aspect of our lives is changed. Now, I want you to imagine. There are, we have several selves. By that, I mean we have our social selves. We have our private selves. We have our 
our job-oriented selves, uh, other responsibility selves. Now, just imagine all of yourselves in a boardroom. You know what a boardroom is, right? That's where you go to have a meeting that bores you. That's what a boardroom is. So all of yourselves are in this boardroom, and they're all chattering. They know there's been a change in this organization. They're all chattering about who's going to have top dog in the organizational chart. Is it going to be the uh, money-making savvy person of yourself, or is it going to be the social uh, person, or what's it going to be? And they're all chattering away, and then you and Jesus walk into the boardroom. And they're all starting to lay out their credentials for how they need to be the top person in this organizational chart. And Jesus holds up his hands and he says, "Um, peace be with you. You're all fired. See, he's now the CEO of this organization called you. And all yourselves are done. They're fired. And they all file out of the boardroom one by one. Because now he is in charge of your life. He is the one who's going to change you. You know, we used to live for ourselves. But now that Jesus is the Lord of our lives, whatever we thought would bring us happiness or contentment, now is changed. It's now changed. Everything we thought was important takes a backseat to knowing Christ. Paul put it this way in Philippians 3.8, Um, He said, everything else is worthless. I want to say it this way. Everything else is worth less than knowing Christ. Now, that doesn't mean everything we have is bad. Everything we have that God has given us would be good. But it's never ultimate. And that's why I think Paul says it's worth less. You realize everything can be taken away from you? In fact, everything will be taken away from us. Everything. Right? Someday, you're going to have to give your keys for the car to your kids because you shouldn't be driving anymore. Your driving privileges are going to be taken away. Someday, you're not going to be able to go out and run the 5K because your knees are killing you and it hurts too bad to take one step. You can't run anymore. Someday, when you're on your deathbed, you will actually lose everything, everything. The bed you're on, the house you're in, the people around you who love you, they'll be all gone. One thing remains, the love of God in Christ. It cannot be taken from you, and you cannot lose it. It's the only thing we have. That's why Paul was willing to say and believed it. Everything is worth less than that love of God in Christ towards me. Now, not only does the Lord change the direction of our lives, but that first new direction includes the engagement with a new circle of friends. Conversion draws us into a new community of like-minded people that we call believers, and that's the church, so that we can continue to live the converted lifestyle. The late J.I. Packer, I think, must have coined this word. He said, living convertedly, living convertedly. That is, we are converted and we keep on living that way. And conversion results in belonging to and engaging with a local church. In fact, John Stott, the former pastor, said, Jesus did not add converts to the church without saving them. Therefore, no nominal Christianity at the beginning. 
nor did he save converts without adding them to the church, no solitary Christianity either. Salvation and church membership go together. They always have and they still do. Now, I'd like to, to, to have us think about membership, not just as, you know, people say to me, why do I need to sign on the dotted line? You know, I don't need to become a member of a church or anything like that. I can, you know, I don't need to sign a piece of paper. I mean, after all, all I get to do is vote on the new pastor and vote on the new budget. Now, if you think that about the church, you're not reading the New Testament carefully enough. Because the New Testament has a very different view about church engagement and church membership than that. Think of the, the metaphors that are used to describe the church, the church that Jesus died for and loves, the people of God. I'm sorry, the body of Christ, the body of Christ. All right, now I want you to imagine something with me. You get up in the morning, I don't know what time you get up. And, you, and when you get up, you, you know, you, you throw a leg over the side of the bed. Just imagine that that leg is not there, and you fall flat on your face on the floor. Now, would you, A, say, eh, it's okay, I'll just go get a wooden peg leg, and be, I'll just fulfill my childhood dream of being a pirate? <laughs> or would you scream at the top of your lungs in absolute terror and confusion, wondering what in the world happened? Think of another metaphor, the family of God. Family of God. So, uh, imagine this. You are down in, the, in your kitchen or wherever you have breakfast, and, uh, and, you know, and everybody's there. The, your husband is there. You know, Emily is there. Stephen is there. They're eating their Cheerios, getting ready for school. Husband getting ready for work. But you're missing Walter. Walter's not there. So, you, you go and you yell, hey, Walter, breakfast is on. Let's go. And uh, no answer. So you go up to Walter's bedroom, and he's not, in, he's not in his bedroom. So you go to all these different rooms of the house to try and find Walter, and he's not there. Would you, A, say, well, it's no big deal. Eh, my husband and I will just make another one look just like him. <laughs> or, B, get on 911 right away and start a frantic phone call for people to come and help find where Walter is. Which one would you do? B, right? Now, if God thinks the, 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 the church is important in that way, why don't we? Why don't we? Why do we need the church? We need the church because none of us as Christians can grow in isolation. Think of this. Everyone who is a convert has never been a Christian before. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you grew up in the church. You've never really been a Christian until you were genuinely converted because now you're on the path of a different lifestyle entirely different lifestyle. When you're not converted, you come, you're coming out of darkness into light. That's what the Bible says. You've never been in the light before. You've only been in darkness. You only know what alienation from God is like, and now you need other people to help you experience what it means to walk as a Christian. I, uh, I had a, a, a couple of leaders in our church. They, they were just giving me fits, you know, and... I just, I just needed some help in how to relate to these uh, two men. And so I went to a couple of friends of mine who were a part of Peacemaker Ministries. And I went there to tell them and complain about these two guys. I told them these guys are awful. I know they're absolutely wrong on this issue. I don't know what in the world is wrong with them. I don't know what to do. Is there anything you can tell me? Can you help me to figure out how to fix these two guys? And the one friend of mine said, Bob, what does God want you to do 
What, what three things does God want you to do right now? And it was just like this screen went up in front of me, like those heads-up displays in the Air Force jets. And the first thing said, confess your contribution to the problem. And we oh, I knew I shouldn't have asked these guys. <laughs> but see, I needed them to remind me that my desire to live in independence is a sin. Independence is what got Adam and Eve thrown out of the garden. And I am prone to living independently. So I need to engage in the community of God people who can remind me what I need to know and what I need to do. Now, conversion brings a life change. So we're living uh, Godward lives, uh, a change in a circle of friends. Um, so we value community of other believers, and then finally a change in the way we suffer. Now this may seem like it comes right out of left field, but it really doesn't. If you look back up in chapter nine of Acts, you'll see that the Lord said to, to uh, uh, Ananias who prayed for, for Saul, he said, I want you to go pray for him so that I can show him all those things he's gonna suffer for my name's sake. Now we all suffer, yes? There's suffering everywhere in the world. And Paul even made his suffering an ambition in his life. And he said it in Philippians 3.10. He was suffering with Christ, sharing in his death, so that he might experience resurrection from the dead. So Paul embraced this suffering as a way of advancing the mission of the gospel in his life. Now, all of us suffer. Everybody suffers. It's just simply a part of a fallen world. It's, uh, the, the, it's, it's part of the world of pain. It's part of the world of tears. Part of the world of mourning and crying. Whether it's from our own foolish actions or from some external forces that, that might come our way. And always the question in our suffering is why? Why me? Why now? Why this? And why do I deserve it? You know, God has some good reasons for our suffering regardless of how it gets to us. Uh, it can deepen our faith. It can uh, remove the props that we're trusting in rather than trusting in Christ. People who suffer deepen their compassion for other people who are suffering or in some kind of affliction. Now, in my experience with God, it's about killing my ego almost every time. A couple of years ago, uh, we were reading this book by Paul Miller called The J-Curve, uh, the subtitle is Dying and Rising with Jesus in Everyday Life. And uh, it's, it's, it's about that. It's about embracing that suffering, suffering with Christ in order to transform our lives. And I was reading this one particular chapter where he was focusing on how to die to self. Really, the idea is how to kill your selfishness. How do you die to selfishness? And... Um, at the time I was reading that chapter, I was, we were in the old uh, kitchen before the remodel, and, and they were having a conversation, people were having a conversation, and I very rarely enter into conversations unless I kind of know what I'm talking about. Most of the time I don't, so I don't really say a whole lot. But this conversation was moving in a direction where I actually knew something. Not only did I know it, I had a degree in it. Well, this was exciting. I could show everybody how intelligent I was. I could give a well-educated opinion. So I waited for my time. I waited for that moment when there's a pause in the action and I could jump in and say, hey, let me tell you what I know. And just as I was to open my mouth, someone else jumped in 
with exactly what I was going to say. And here's what bugged me the most. That person and I had that conversation two or three days earlier and said exactly the same thing I said then. It was plagiarism. No footnote to me. And then I thought of the chapter, Kill Your Selfishness. What am I going to do? I could, um, I could jump in and say, hey, you, I told you that. You're quoting me now. Or I could just be quiet and take a hat pin to my ego. So you know what I did? I jumped in. No. I did not. I needed that moment to know the beauty of Christ's life by setting himself aside for the sake of others. That's what Jesus did, isn't it? That's what made his life beautiful. He gave up all of his bragging rights for people who don't have bragging rights. Jesus set aside his privilege as the Son of God to become like us and be God with us. He left a throne of authority and beauty and power and grace to live under authority. Listen to all the authorities he lived under. He lived under his parents' authority. He lived under the Old Testament law authority. He lived under the religious leaders' authority. He lived under government authorities, and most of all, he lived under his own father's authority. He is the king. He is the king who upholds all the worlds and all the nations of this world and all of us, and he became a carpenter. The king became a carpenter in a backwater little town of Israel where nobody hardly knew anything at all except they could know what good comes out of Nazareth, by the way. He was perfection, but he died as a sinful criminal without any sin in his own life. He voluntarily did all of that so that all of us who never had bragging rights about anything could brag about the one who did have all those rights, and we boast in Christ. Now, we're going to conclude in prayer in a way of thinking about where we are on that spectrum of conversion to living convertedly. And I want to pray specifically for you, wherever you might be on that. First of all, I want to pray for anyone here who... Who is, who is on the verge of conversion. You know, you, you just sort of know it, and you don't know what to do about it. I'm going to pray for you. And then I want to pray for those who want to grow in living the converted lifestyle. Pray for those who are fearful about engaging with the life of a church because you've been hurt in the past by it. I'm going to pray for you. And then I want to pray at the end for us to learn how to suffer well and to experience that resurrection power in Christ as we do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you know uh, who is here who needs conversion and wants conversion. You know them. And you brought them here. We pray that you will open the eyes, their eyes to the glory and safety that is ours in Christ so that they might surrender to the love of God in him. Grant them the freedom to trust him by giving them the faith necessary to leave the darkness behind and come to God who is light. Cleanse them from their sin. Heal their spiritual wounds. 
bring deliverance to whatever aspect of their life that's bound them. And Lord, living, in a, living as a Christian is, is hard work in this world. But Lord, you give us the power to work out our salvation. And for those who have struggled in their walk in this life, who feel like they fail time and time again, give them the grace of the Spirit that breathes the life of God into their souls. And let them know that you are the one who completes their sin-tainted efforts to follow Christ. And Father, we know there are people who have been wounded by their past engagements in a church. They are more cautious. They may even be skeptical. They may even have said one time, I'm just giving it up. We pray that you will let them see that you know their pain. You know what it feels like to be rejected. You know the depths of loneliness because there, you were there. You were a man who was well acquainted with grief. You were called a man of sorrows. Those difficult times were, de were designed for a weight of glory that we can't now see. So we ask that you would bind up those wounds and that those folks will find true, the true experience of grace engaging in a local church. And Father, for those of us who suffer in this world, whether in the past or in the future or even right now, we know this is a fallen world. It is, it is so fallen that we sometimes want to look the other way because we see the injustices, the pride, the arrogance, and it just weighs us down all the more. And so we ask that in our suffering, you will come to us with the very best tasting foods and drink from the king's table to refresh our souls. Teach us in our afflictions to suffer well like Paul did, when he said that in his sufferings, he might know you in the power of your resurrection, becoming like you in your death so that he can attain to the resurrection from the dead. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said...